Good evening. Biden calls Putin a thug and asks China for help. The United States plans a massive rearming of Ukraine, the threat of accidental nuclear war, COVID and the Koch brothers. And the mayor says he's putting an end to the public videotaping of police. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Friday, March 18th, 2022. President Joe Biden warned China against helping Russia attack Ukraine in a video call with President Xi Jinping on Friday as concern grew over mass civilian casualties in the besieged southern port of Mariupol. The call came a day after Biden called Russia's President Vladimir Putin a thug. My generic point is that, you know, uh, now you have Ireland and uh, Great Britain and, and, uh, you know, uh, the Republic... uh, Uh, standing together against a murderous dictator, a pure thug who is waging an immoral war against the people of Ukraine. And by the way, the Republic is paying a big price for this, a big number for supporting the strategy, for supporting the sanctions, including aircraft, a whole range of things. It's, It's not a minor contribution they're making to this effort. It's significant. Ireland and the United States are working together for the first time now. They're on the United Nations Security Council. Ireland's a part of the Security Council now, and the European Union. And Putin is paying a, a, a big price for his aggression, and, uh, and they uh, are part of the reason that his cost is going so high. The United States is sending arms shipments to Ukraine in the fight against the Russian invasion. The Kremlin calls it a special military operation. Yesterday, Secretary of State Antony Blinken laid out the cornucopia of war being sent east. President Biden described this new security assistance package includes 800 anti-aircraft systems to stop attacking planes and helicopters before they destroy more of Ukraine, 9,000 anti-armor systems to destroy tanks and armored vehicles, 7,000 small arms, including machine guns and grenade launchers, and 20 million rounds of ammunition. We're also helping Ukraine acquire longer-range anti-aircraft systems and munitions at President Zelensky's request. And I've been in almost daily contact with Foreign Minister Kaleva, coordinating to respond swiftly to Ukraine's most urgent needs. Our allies and partners continue to step up with their own significant shipments of security assistance. I've authorized more than a dozen countries to provide U.S. origin equipment, and dozens more around the world have provided security assistance of their own. I'd also note that in addition to assistance from the Department of Defense, we're sending support from other agencies, including $10 million worth of armored vehicles from our own diplomatic security service. And yesterday, I announced another $186 million in humanitarian assistance to help the more than 3 million refugees who fled Ukraine in the past three weeks the fastest growing refugee crisis in Europe since World War II, as well as internally displaced people still in Ukraine. China is the one big power that's yet to condemn Russia's assault, and Washington fears Beijing may be considering giving Moscow financial and military support, something that both Russia and China deny. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki laid out the call to President Xi and says China will be held accountable if they help Russia break the economic sanctions coming from the West.
The majority of this call, as I think you heard, you saw in the readout, and you heard, I think, on the call we just did, uh, but was focused on uh, Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. Uh, the president spent the vast majority of the nearly two hours was spent with the president outlining the views of the United States and our allies and partners on this crisis, including a detailed overview of efforts to prevent and then respond to the invasion, how we got here, steps we've taken, where where we've gone, and why. He also conveyed and described the implications and consequences if China provides material support to Russia. Meanwhile, in more war news, as always subject to the fog of battle, the mayor of the Ukrainian port city of Mariupol confirmed fighting has reached the center of the city, where some 400,000 people are trapped, sheltering from bombardment that has cut electricity, heating, and water supplies. The mayor added around 35,000 people and managed to leave the city in recent days, many on foot or in convoys of private cars, but near constant shelling was preventing humanitarian aid from getting in. In related news, Jacob Kern, emergency coordinator for the crisis at the United Nations World Food Program, said Ukraine's food supply chain is falling apart with insecurity and fear of attack hindering the movement of goods. The World Health Program buys nearly half of its wheat from Ukraine to feed people in global crisis zones, and Kern said the war could cause collateral hunger in poor countries worldwide. And in Ukraine's west, three missiles landed at an airport near Lvov, a western city where hundreds of thousands thought they had found refuge far from Ukraine's battlefields. The use of accurate surface missiles has raised the specter of an accident that may lead to a military escalation and the possibility of a nuclear exchange between the United States and Russia that would devastate the planet. Ted Postel is Professor Emeritus of Science, Technology, and National Security Policy at MIT. He says potential for a nuclear era lies in the Russian early warning system. He says it's nothing like the U.S. early warning system, adding the U.S. government knows when a ballistic missile has been launched anywhere in the world. The Russians can't do that. Professor Postel spoke to WBAI. Unfortunately, this rocket rising to a high altitude looked like it could be a submarine-launched ballistic missile rising to a high altitude. What it could have been, from the point of view of the early warning people, was a rocket carrying a nuclear weapon to 12 or 1,300 kilometers and exploding at that altitude. And the X-rays radiating from the weapon would create an ionized layer of air in the atmosphere that would essentially absorb all the radio signals from the radars that are trying to look out to see if there's an attack underway. It's a kind of strategy that has been talked about. The United States and Russia both spend time worrying about it. The problem that the Russians had was all they had to do was look to see if there was any launches in the North Atlantic coming at Russia. But they couldn't see the North Atlantic, at least. We didn't know that at the time, but after doing a lot of work, we discovered that their space-based satellites are not capable of seeing the North Atlantic. The commanders who were looking at this uh, evolving potential attack uh, reached a conclusion that they shouldn't act on it or that they should wait to act on it was basically because the, the global situation was very peaceful. There are an uncountably large number of other incidents that we can't even talk about because there's so many possibilities. You know, submarines colliding at sea, 
aircraft engaging each other you know near the borders uh, last year we sent a flight of b-52s from england they flew right up to the border of russia and then turned around this is the kind of provocation that the united states would never stand for and why the russians should stand for this why we we should risk our nation i'm talking about the u.s now by doing things that could inadvertently result in an escalation leading to the destruction of both nations, it's hard to understand why we would do this kind of thing. You know, it reminds me of the movie Failsafe more than Dr. Strangelove. Nuclear war fighting makes no sense. I want to be clear about that. But the United States has been taking measures to increase its nuclear war fighting capabilities, and the Russian military cannot ignore this. If your job is to worry about providing nuclear force if it's needed, for your country. You can't ignore the adversary taking measures that look like they plan to fight and win against you, whatever that means. And the Russians have an inadequate early warning system. So the only way they can deal with this, and I'm not suggesting they're crazy here, I'm just, they're forced into this by the situation, is to pre-delegate the launch of systems under certain situations. So it could be if a nuclear weapon goes off on Moscow, you could have sensors, you could automatically release all your nuclear forces to launch. So that's in effect a doomsday weapon, similar to Dr. Strangelove. So the danger is very great. I think Biden is trying very hard to deal with it. And I give him high marks. I think he he has surrounded himself with advisors who are really not knowledgeable and capable. I know some of these people. None of them have ever made a mistake. You can't talk to any of them because they know it all. And these are dangerous people. And these are the people he has to depend on. He's under, of course, political opportunistic pressures from people who who have no responsibilities and want to call him weak. He's not being weak. He's being extremely prudent and he's doing what needs to be done to protect the country from a catastrophe that would end our country as a nation. What about this high alert that Russia announced, that Putin announced at the beginning of this conflict? He has forces that could strike back at the United States, nuclear forces that are at sea. Those forces are in a posture to strike back, to have minimal damage done to them if we strike at them, and to strike back as soon as they get an order. Same with the ICBMs. Not our father's uh, world war we're talking about. No, no, no. It's really not a good situation. Ted Postel is Professor Emeritus of Science, Technology, and National Security Policy at MIT. You're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. New York City's new health commissioner, Dr. Ashwin Vasan, provided his first COVID-19 briefing Friday and addressed concerns on the rise of infections linked to the new sub-Omicron variant BA. He says while the current COVID-19 alert level in the city is low, it presents enough of a threat that private business vaccine mandates will stay in place indefinitely and that students under five must remain masked at school for now. Vassin says symptoms of the new variant are similar to Omicron, but there's no evidence that the subvariant causes more severe illness or that current COVID-19 vaccines are less effective against it. Nevertheless, they said that New Yorkers should remain vigilant. We will now see an increase in BA.2 with its increased growth advantage over BA.1. 
So for the person out there, everybody that's out there that's, that's watching this, um, what is important for you to know is that this virus continues to be dangerous. This virus transmits very efficiently between people, but there's a lot that you can do. At a global level and as an organization, what we're doing and working with, with governments, we're working with our partners to do two major things. One is to increase vaccination coverage among those who are most at risk in all countries, not just some countries, and making sure we reach that 70% target by June 2022. But we're also trying to do everything that we can to support the reduction in transmission. We will not be able to prevent all transmissions. That's not the goal. To prevent all infection and all transmission, that's not attainable at this point. But we need to drive transmission down. Dr. Maria Vankerkov of the World Health Organization. In recent months, the United States has been trying to shed many of the masking and vaccination mandates that helped contain the pandemic, but proved to be unpopular as it interfered with what had been normal life before COVID-19. But in a report penned by Walker Bragman and Alex Koch, How Dark Money Shaped the School Safety Debate at the DailyPoster.com, the authors claim that dark political money has shifted the debate on COVID to dangerous territory including sending kids back to school before it's safe. And he says that dark money is coming from the Koch brothers. School reopenings, getting kids back into schools would free up their parents to return to work. They estimated that 27 million Americans were dependent on childcare in order to work. Getting kids back would probably be a prerequisite to tapping into the full productive capacity of the workforce. So, so that's really where the push came from. So why don't they support uh, all the benefits that people have wanted at a federal level for uh, taking care of children or taking care of women when they're pregnant and things like that? These organizations in particular, and Charles Koch, the oil tycoon billionaire who's behind them, is that they come from a strong libertarian tradition where in order to justify these sort of obscene gains at the top, they don't want higher taxes, and they're very libertarian in that sense. Government should do the least possible, interfere the least amount possible, and basically just leave the markets alone and let rich guys like Charles Koch make as much money as they can make. So that means they see schools as babysitters? Essentially, yes. Schools are the daycare that we don't provide. Coke-affiliated groups like the Independent Women's Forum start putting out questioning, oh, are we doing harm to our children by keeping them out of school? Is this really damaging? And, you know, I talked to experts, pediatricians. I spoke to a clinical psychiatrist for young people and these narratives have become wildly popular today. People regurgitate them all over the place in major media, and there's very little backing behind any of them. Yes, learning loss is a problem. Yes, we young kids need socialization, and that is inevitable, but we're also in a public health crisis. Something like a million children have lost caregiver worldwide. It's just a lot of needless death. People need to understand that It didn't have to be like this. Other countries did more for people to keep them out of harm's way, paid them to stay home. And the only reason that we haven't done that is because capital, really, that's it. Inordinate amount of influence in our politics, thanks to a series of Supreme Court decisions going back to 1976. It's left us completely vulnerable and killed so many people. Walker Bragman and Alex Koch are authors of How Dark Money Shaped the School Safety Debate at thedailyposter.com. 
In more New York City news, Mayor Eric Adams on Wednesday used a police academy news conference launching his gun-focused public safety unit to decry New Yorkers, he says, use their cell phones to record cops and get so close to the action they create what he calls a dangerous environment. Stop being on top of my police officers while they're carrying out their jobs. That is not acceptable and it won't be tolerated. That is a very dangerous environment you are creating when you're on top of that officer who has the understanding of what he's doing at the time, yelling police brutality, yelling at the officer, calling them names. Now he has to worry about who's behind him. Is he part of the process that he's trying to de-escalate? That has gotten out of control. You can safely document an incident, but we could use that footage to analyze what happened. But that's not what's happening right now in our city. We're finding people who are standing on top of the officer while he's involved in a dangerous encounter. Not acceptable. It's not going to continue to happen. Mayor Eric Adams. In 2014, cell phone footage of the chokehold death of Eric Garner on Staten Island went viral, sparking outrage and leading to calls around the country to reform police practices. Garner's friend, Ramsey Orta, recorded the incident on his cell phone, but he did so from a distance and didn't interfere in the fatal confrontation, even as police tried pressuring him to stop recording. Orta was later arrested on a warrant and sent to jail for several years. A video of George Floyd recorded by bystanders in 2020 showed a former Minneapolis officer choking him for nine minutes and causing Floyd's death. The video sparked months of protest while spreading the movement against police violence in the United States worldwide. And in related news, the family of Delron Small seeks to co-name Bradford Street between Atlantic and Liberty Avenues in Brooklyn in honor of the 37-year-old who was killed by off-duty NYPD officer Wayne Isaacs on July 4, 2016, in front of Small's girlfriend, four-month-old child, and 14-year-old stepdaughter. The activists want to rename the street corner near the site of the killing to honor Small, who activists and family members say was a victim of police brutality. Monifa Bandelli is a board member of Communities United for Police Reform Action. Five years ago, this July, Delron Smalls was driving uh, with his family in the car uh, and was killed by police officer Wayne Isaacs, who was actually off duty at the time. A lot of people didn't hear about Delron's murder for the first couple days because actually Officer Isaacs lied um, about what happened, claimed that Delron had attacked him, had punched him. And so this was one of those cases where no one would have ever known what really happened. But it just so happens that the store that's there on the corner of Atlantic and Bradford had had uh, cameras, had video cameras out in the front. And so about five days later, when the family was able to get their hands on the video footage of this um, of this police brutality, then they were able to, to see the truth, you know, that Delron had been shot by Wayne Isaacs, that he never touched Wayne Isaacs, never approached him or punched him or pulled out a weapon, none of that, right? Since then, communities have been working with Delron's sister and brother, Victoria Davis and Victor Davis, to bring justice for Delron. They did have a trial. Wayne Isaacs was acquitted, unfortunately, but he also still remains on the police force. And so the family has a very active campaign to call for his firing from the NYPD. This summer, we're launching a campaign along with his sister, Victoria Davis, to co-name the street of Bradford between Atlantic Avenue and Liberty 
because not only was Delron killed on Atlantic Avenue right there, he also grew up within those two blocks and has family that still lives there. So we want to honor his life and legacy by co-naming the block. This whole idea of uh, him cracking down on people who film, because you mentioned about how those cameras were told the truth that wouldn't have been known if it wasn't that they were there. Eric Garner, right? Mm. Also, Ramali Graham, a teenager in the Bronx who police swore they had chased him into his house. And then the camera showed that he actually was just walking into his house and had no idea. These police officers were running up behind him and would ultimately kill him. The video footage is what Eric Adams, the police department, the police unions are trying to actually crack down on. It's really not people doing cop watch. One of the first programs that we did in 2000 after the acquittal of the police officers that killed Amadou Diallo was community cop watch. You know, so this is something that we've been doing for a couple decades. We see it for what it is. Video footage has been exposing police violence. It's been exposing how often police officers lie on reports. I mean, it's almost, it's, it's ridiculous. How do you feel that would actually play out? Already have found ourselves under attack for cop watch. You know, in 2005, three of our cop watchers were brutally arrested for cop watching. The danger is that now he's basically signaling to the police that he has their backs against cop watching. So again, just like this street crimes unit, very dangerous. Um, It is basically a signpost to them to say, you know, if you don't want people filming, you can stop them by saying it's too aggressive. I mean, what is aggressive filming? What's aggressive is the police, these arrests. You know, stop and frisk, which we sued uh, we sued New York City about. One of our members is Floyd in the Floyd versus New York City stop and frisk case. How does this play into the narrative of racial oppression in America, if at all? Or is it just cop violence? No, it's very important because what we've been saying all along, what our parents have been saying all along, is racism is systemic. That's why our calls to do everything from moving money out of the police force into public health is so key, because it's not about one bad apple. It's not about replacing white people with black people. It's a systemic issue that perpetuates violence against black communities, and that is what we have to change. We need systems change. We need a full restructuring of our city budget. Monifa Bandelli is a board member of Communities United for Police Reform Action. New York Governor Kathy Hochul is looking to make changes to recent reforms that would make it easier for judges to set bail for certain crimes. The 10-point public safety package proposed by the Democratic governor, who is running for re-election this year, would generally make more offenses bail eligible and offer judges more discretion in setting bail. The measure would also reverse some of the state bail law changes, which were championed by criminal justice advocates as a means to ensure that people would not remain incarcerated pre-trial because of their finances. The Legal Aid Society called Hochul's reaction a knee-jerk reaction to the Raise the Age statute, saying that the law has not contributed to a spike in gun violence. The governor's plan on bail is considered a non-starter in Albany. Governor Hochul also jumped into the fray of international politics, announcing an executive order that would further state sanctions against any goods made in Russia. And we're going to be announcing an executive order that we're going to be strengthening our sanctions against Russia as well. And we're going to have additional blockchain analytics technology to make sure that we're being very vigilant about what they do. We're now going to prohibit any state agencies and authorities from contracting with any entities that are still doing business in Russia. 
So this is not just directly with Russian companies. It is with companies, American companies that are continuing to do business in Russia in light of what's happening. So that is the message that we're delivering to our state agencies and authorities today to cease business, uh, to no, have no more future contracts with those entities. We're continuing to put the pressure on. And I saw this as a young college student when we were trying to stop apartheid in South Africa. And it was when people started divesting holdings in companies that were doing business in South Africa, we finally created the economic pressure that resulted in change and we got our university and other universities across the nation to divest their holdings. So I know the impact of what uh, even a college can do, but I certainly know the power of New York State and the ability that we have to have influence in our own way as well. The governor made the announcement in Yonkers at the AFYA Foundation, which is teaming up with the Greater New York Hospital Association to send medical and humanitarian supplies overseas to help Ukraine. Over 200 pallets of supplies will be shipped this week to Poland and then to Lviv, a western city in Ukraine. These pallets are filled with items like first aid, surgical supplies, medical equipment, hospital beds, stretchers, and wheelchairs. And that's some of the news for Friday, March 18th, 2022. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.